Hello? Can you hear me? Just about? There we go. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Mm, little grumble. Yeah, we're doing good. Fantastic. It's a real joy um, to be bringing God's word to you again this morning. Um, uh, it's great to just have some more freedom in worship, actually, isn't it? To be able to um, gather together and sing together. It's really good. And I'm just genuinely excited about what God is doing in us as a church and through us as a church in this season. Um, just to let you know, if you're visiting this morning, um, we've been going through, since January actually, we've been going through the book um, or the letters to the Corinthians, Corinthians 1 and 2. Um, and we just finished the first letter to the Corinthians before summer, and we've just, we're just in the early part of the second, uh, second book of Corinthians, which is where I'm picking up today. Um, if you want to recap on what we've been teaching about so far, just to let you know that on our YouTube channel, we have three amazing uh, recap videos, which Sarah Welch and Owen have worked really hard to make possible. They're really good, and do take a look at them. So we're going to be picking up um, in chapter three this morning. And if you remember, Sai introduced us to the second letter in chapter one, um, Paul was teaching about knowing the comfort of the Lord within affliction and persecution. And then last week, Owen um, shared with us about, Paul, about how Paul is wanting the church's boasts to be in Christ and not in their own achievements or accomplishments. And, so, um, and that's how Paul ends chapter 2, by applying that reality to his own authority over the church. So I need a volunteer to come and read this. Um, I say volunteer. Jenny, can you come and read the passage? This is my beautiful wife. She's better at reading than me. Um, just here. Oh, thank you. You and told me you were going to get someone yeah. to read. Can I have a microphone? <laughs> just Do you want here. me to use one of the brown ones? It's okay. Is it here? Yeah. All the way. So Jenny's just going to start with the last verse in chapter 2. Just give us this one. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you're a letter from Christ, delivered by us, not written, not written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains, un- when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amazing. Thank you, Jenny. Do stay up here. I'm not done with you yet. Oh, you're not making me do the next bit. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to play a little game of Pictionary, just to help us to understand a little bit. I didn't warn her about this, you can tell. Please tell me what it is. Okay, we're going to play a short game of Pictionary, no shouting out, okay, so this is just going to help us hopefully understand a little bit more about one of the words in the passage that Jenny just read. So, hands up if you know the answer of what Jenny's going to draw. We're going to a couple of easy ones first, completely unrelated to the text. Thank you. Hands up please, Phil. There we go. Fantastic. You guys are good. Coming around yours for Christmas this year. And the last one. Hands up, please, for this one. Mark, what is it? No, it's not the sun. Owen, no. Well, it probably is. One more, come on. Yeah, Matt, Matthew. Matthew? Calling you by your surname, Mr. Matthews. Glory. Everyone give everyone give David World a round of applause. Glory, yes. I realised I said, or Jenny said, glory 12 times within 12 verses. And if you don't know what glory means, then that's going to be a little bit confusing for you. So um, in Hebrew, um, the word for glory means weightiness or heaviness. Um, But it's actually really hard to explain or define um, in words. It's kind of the thing, a bit like beauty, you'd kind of point at it and go, oh, that's beautiful or that's glorious. Um, So I'm just going to give you a definition from someone a lot smarter than me. Um, John Piper defines glory like this. The glory of the Lord is the infinite beauty of his manifold perfections. So manifold meaning many. Or in other words, it's the manifest beauty of his holiness. And if you don't know what holiness is, that means something that is set apart. Yeah, it's different from other things. Um, 
or my definition, which is a lot more simpler, which is the weighty presence of God's holiness displayed in a tangible way. So I'm going to be focusing on three main things this morning um, with you from the passage. We're going to be looking at, the, at sufficiency from God, the letter and the spirit, and freedom. So, let's start from verse 1, chapter 3. Can I just get a quick show of hands, anyone who remembers writing their first CV? That's quite a good chunk of people. Yeah, so Paul says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves, or do we need recommendation? Um, I remember writing my first CV. Um, It wasn't a very enjoyable experience, um, mainly because I didn't have much experience. But as you know, as you write CVs, as you get more and more experience, you have to get references from other employers, and um, you have to you know, go through interviews and that kind of thing, um, because the person who's employing you, or the, or the company that is employing you, is want, wanting to know that you are genuinely capable for that role. And in a similar way, it was actually quite normal in the first century Um, for the church to receive letters of recommendation before a minister, just like the Apostle Paul, would come and teach. It's something that was written by hand, um, describing why that church should be happy to receive such a man to come and speak. And actually, if you read through the whole letter, uh, second letter to the Corinthians, you'll notice there's an ongoing theme where Paul is addressing, addressing this question that they have over his ability and his right to speak into their lives without a letter of recommendation. Um, And some commentators actually say that the whole point in the second letter was to address that precise question. But it's not the only thing that Paul teaches us. It's not the only thing that we can learn from the passage. So here we are at the start of chapter 3. Paul is asking this very question. He's effectively saying, we don't need... A reference, not from ourselves, not from anybody else, not even from you. As I said at the end of chapter two, we're not peddlers of God's word. We are commissioned by God in the sight of God speaking in Christ. Why do we need a bit of paper? And it's at this point that Paul begins to explain what he means by this in verse two and verse three. He says, You. Corinth, Church of Corinth, you are our reference. Now, in my opinion, that's a pretty bold statement to be putting down in writing based on what we know of the Corinthian church and what Paul knows of the Corinthian church and based on what we know of the painful dealings that he has recently had with the church. He's basically saying this sketchy bunch, not you lot, this sketchy bunch of misfits is my reference. Now we look at the real, the main reason why Paul is saying this in a minute, but I just want to touch on something um, that I feel is really important in this in this passage um, that I don't want us to skip past. So as we know, Paul is firsthand aware of their failings and of their shortcomings. Um, he's not stupid. He's not a forgetful man. Yet he has the confidence to place his own 
credibility and his own reputation upon the fruit of their lives, even when they're a work in progress, just like us. Why? I believe it's because Paul believes in authentic churches. He believes in building authentic churches. He's showing the people of Corinth that his ministry and his confidence and his sufficiency and his reliance is based on something far bigger than a word of recommendation. It's bigger than what they have to say about him. It's bigger than what he has to say about himself. And it's bigger than what other people have to say about him. It's even bigger than the mistakes they make along the way. The reason Paul can say that you lot are my CV is because Paul's confidence is in the power and the presence and the promises of God. And we're going to touch on that a bit more in a minute. I'm going to take a drink. So how does that apply to us? This is really important for us, actually, because God is after our authenticity. Yeah, he's not after our game face. He's not after, you know, if we're doing, had a rubbish week. He's not after our smiles come through the door. Oh, yeah, everything's fine. He's after our authenticity. He's after our passion, not our performance. And he wants us to be real with each other. And he wants us to be real with him. He knows our weakness. He knows our struggles. He knows our temptations because he went through them himself. We just have to be willing to be genuine before him and before each other and allow him to work on us. Paul is confident that the work Christ has started amongst them will be brought to completion because it is founded on something eternal. He says, you are Christ's letter of recommendation to the world and the ongoing evidence of Christ's work in you through the Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf. And that's why you should take what I, Paul, have to say seriously. And in the same way, the church today, we are Christ's letter to the world, aren't we? We're his letter to the world. And our ability and our sufficiency to be that letter to the world doesn't come from our own strength. It comes from Jesus and his strength. We are his workmanship. And his workmanship speaks of who he is. If the church is going to walk in authenticity with each other and with God, then we need to be a gracious and a patient and a forgiving people, don't we? Just like Paul demonstrates to the church in Corinth. So we're going to move on to verse 6 now. I'm not sure if I've got it on the screen, but you've got it in your Bibles. He goes on to say, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but the Spirit. For the letter kills, not the sort of letter that he was talking about before, by the way, um, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul's told them that they're a letter from Christ, and now he goes on to elaborate on this truth and what it means. Um, and he says that his sufficiency to be a minister comes from God, 
And that ministry that they bring is one that is greater than the church has been used to, which is the old covenant. He's bringing the new covenant. Now, I know tables are really boring, but um, Joel, if you could pop the table up behind me. Um, Just kind of separated the contrast that Paul is making um, here in the passage as he talks about the difference between the letter, which is the old covenant, and the spirit, which is the new covenant. So he says the letter kills. It's the ministry of death. Um, It had some glory, um, but that glory has passed away, and it's the ministry of condemnation. Whereas the ministry of the spirit, which is the new covenant, it brings life. It is the ministry of life. It has even more glory, and that glory is eternal. And it's the ministry of righteousness as well. So he starts by defining the difference between the two. So what does the letter mean? The letter he's referring to is the law. Yeah, it's, it's what um, we know from the, uh, from the Old Testament. It's the law that we first read about in the book of Exodus, where God calls Moses up a mountain, Uh, into his glorious presence, and he writes on tablets of stone laws for God's people to fulfill. And they define a way to live rightly before God. And within that, um, there's uh, instructions on um, how to clean properly, the sort of meats that you should eat and you shouldn't eat, um, sacrificial procedures, temporal requirements, priestly ordinations, clothing, the lot, okay? It's all there. Um, I just need a volunteer to demonstrate my next point. Can I get anyone relatively sporty here? <laughs> Sam, you look like you've put your head behind someone else's head. Come up the front. <laughs> <clears throat> you much good at basketball, Sam? No, not really. Okay, fantastic. Can you come and stand here? Can you take that? There you go. Okay, you represent the people of Israel. Yeah, this ball represents God's law. Yeah. I am Moses giving you God's law. God's given it to me to give to you. And what I need you to do is spin it on your finger <laughs> for the rest of your life, Okay. <laughs> Just to say, your, your life does depend on that. So if you could, if you could uh, face the people and just spin it on your finger for as, as long as you can. That's good. Brilliant. That's great. Thanks, Sam. Yep. Good effort. Let's give him a round of applause. That looked a bit like what Israel was trying to do with God's law. They were trying to uphold it. They were trying to um, fulfill it perfectly, but actually their ability to do it um, wasn't quite there. Um, now the letter um, that Moses, sorry, the, the law that um, God gave to Moses to give to the people of Israel was given for three main reasons. Okay, firstly, it was to distinguish Israel from the rest of creation so that they would be set apart or holy. Secondly, um, as we read in, in Galatians 3, its purpose was to highlight the sinful nature of mankind. 
And thirdly, it was to point to something or someone greater. And I love Galatians 3, um, and it's really helpful for me um, to understand this and helpful for us to understand this a bit better um, as to why Paul says the letter kills. So in verse 10 and 11 of Galatians 3, it says this, that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law which, by the way, is all of us, all of creation, except for Jesus, because we're all born spiritually separated from God, and we're all imperfect. And then he goes on to say, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified, meaning righteous, before God. So when Paul says that the letter kills and brings condemnation, What he's saying basically is the Old Testament has come to a dead end. You cannot justify yourself before God by works of the law. It's impossible. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And I just want to um, quote for you from, um, from a commentary on 1 and 2 Corinthians from a guy called Charles Hodge. And this really jumped out at me as I was studying. It says this, It, as in the law, held up the rule of duty to be conformed to, but it could not impart, the, it could not impart the disposition of ability to obey. I'll read that again. I'll try not to fumble my words. The law held up the rule of duty to be conformed to, but it could not impart the disposition of ability to obey. So the law has no power to enable obedience. And what we see through the Old Testament and what was made even more clear when Jesus came was that the religious leaders were so fixated on getting this law right. They were so focused on the law and spinning that ball on their finger that they were more focused on that than the person who, or the one who had given them the law. So Paul calls the old covenant the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, and the ministry that has lost its glory. So let's now look at the new covenant. Now the new covenant isn't some idea that Paul has just made up and thought, oh, this this would be good for these guys. Um, Actually, it's deeply rooted in the old covenant. Testament. Paul is a Jew okay, who spent his whole life devoting himself to the letter or the law. He knew firsthand the glory and the significance that the law had. Yeah, so he was able to empathize with anyone who was hard-hearted because that is what he was. He was a hard-hearted Jew before Jesus appeared to him. But because he knew its value, it makes it much more interesting that he recognises its end and its fulfilment. Paul understands how the law and the prophets point forward to the new covenant. The Old Testament is literally full of signposts to the new covenant, to Jesus. But here's just one example of a prophecy from Jeremiah um, that I'm sure Paul would have been thinking about as he wrote this to the Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, I might have 
might even be on the screen. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And he goes on to say in verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the message that we bring, says Paul. It's not an external covenant that's written on tablets of stone like on Sinai. It's not something that requires sight or hearing to understand it. Paul's saying, don't you see? Freedom is here. Change is here. Your ability to come before God has changed because of one person. The coming of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled and ended one covenant and established a greater one. The whole point that Paul is trying to make here is that the old covenant has been superseded by the new one. Not because it wasn't any good, not because it wasn't from God, not because it was irrelevant. It's because Jesus, in Jesus, it has been fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. In Romans 3.21 it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. This is the distinction, okay, that Paul is making. What was is no longer relevant because something better is here, something that has been planned from the beginning of creation. This is the message of authority that we come with. We come with the ministry of life, not the ministry of death, one which is not externally perishable, but is written on the hearts and the souls of all who believe and has far greater glory. It is a ministry of righteousness where you can be made right with God, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus. This is a ministry that doesn't heap burdens of guilt upon us, but is the power of God for salvation. Where the law points out our inability and our need for God and fails to enable obedience, the Spirit writes its smack bang across our hearts and empowers us to live every single day for Him. So what is this ministry of life that comes through the Spirit, the new covenant? What is it? Christchurch, that ministry is the gospel. It's Jesus, Son of God, stepped down into the mess of our world. Born to a virgin, taking on the form of a servant, living a perfect life, obedient in every way to his Father in heaven. Obedience that led to a cross where he was literally nailed for everything that we have done wrong. 
every bitter thought, every evil deed he took to the grave. Done, gone and buried. Amen. So that anyone and everyone who believes in him may receive forgiveness for their sins. His blood on the cross is the sign of the new covenant. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. His blood is the sign of the new covenant. Then if that wasn't good enough, Christchurch, Jesus rose again three days later, defeating death and bringing life, the ministry of life. And if that still doesn't fluff your cushions, when he ascended to the Father, he did so alive in glory and he sent his Holy Spirit, which um, the law of God is written on our hearts by. And he empowers us by his Spirit to live for him every single day. The gospel means good news. Romans 8 puts it like this. This is Paul writing to the Romans. God has now done... What the law could not do, he has given us life where the law could not. He has brought forgiveness where the law could not. He has brought reconciliation with God where the law could not. He has brought more glory where the law could not. Okay, let's go back to the next part of the passage. So Paul starts comparing Moses to Jesus um, And he's doing this to try and compare covenants. Um, If you've got your Bibles, we're in verse 12 now. Verse 12 to 15. So, in verse 12, Paul starts by saying, Since we have this hope, which is the ministry of the Spirit, what we've just been talking about, we are very bold. At which point he draws some comparisons between himself and Moses. He says, I'm not like Moses. We're not like Moses. He says, when Moses met God on the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God to the extent that he had to cover his face with a veil to protect Israel because their hearts were hard. Moses' face wasn't covered because there was a problem with the law or with the glory that he came with. Um, It wasn't even a problem with him. He covered his face because the people's hearts were hard. And Paul says that this ministry that we bring through the Spirit gives freedom and boldness because of the work of the Spirit through Christ Jesus. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I just want us to know this as a church this morning, okay? that if you believe in Jesus... If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given his spirit and therefore you have the greatest freedom that there is. You have freedom from your sin, you have freedom from death and you have freedom to be bold in proclaiming the good news of Christ. And if anyone's questioning what qualifies you this morning to share the good news of Christ to those who don't believe, your qualification is the same as Paul's qualification. It's not in your own ability to speak well or to, um, to be good with words or to have all the right answers. Our qualification is in the promises of God and his sufficiency to fulfill those promises. His covenant gospel is written on our hearts 
and his spirit enables us to speak boldly and freely and to live righteous lives before God. Unlike Moses, Paul says, I'm not wearing a veil. I want to be loud and clear about this new covenant that, um, that has come and the glory that it brings. And then he goes on to say that the problem is the people still aren't hearing and seeing the truth because whenever the law is read, a veil remains over their eyes because of the hardness of their hearts. He says this, only through Christ can that veil be removed. Only through Christ. It's only, one, only when one chooses to turn to Jesus and rely on his accomplishments on the cross that one can truly be free. And who is better to be a testimony of that than the Apostle Paul when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road? His, hard, his heart was hard before God, before that point. And Jesus came and met with him and softened his heart and opened his eyes. The veil dropped away. And then in verse 16, Paul takes this illustration a bit further, okay, 16 to 18, by drawing a parallel between Moses turning to the Lord with an unveiled face in uh, Exodus 34, 34, and the ability for the Corinthians to do the same. He says, but when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And the word here for turn could be repent or convert. Which means that all who turn to Jesus, all who turn to the Lord, can behold his glory. Where is that glory now displayed? It's not on a mountain. It's not in a book of the law. It's not in a temple made with hands. It's not in a tin can. It's in Jesus. It's only, only in Jesus. He says that as we spend our lives gazing upon Jesus, we will behold the glory of the Lord and become ever increasingly like him. John Piper calls this a process of becoming what you adore. As we know Jesus more closely, as we know him more deeply, the spirit of the Lord will transform us into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another. Tom Wright, in his commentary on um, 2 Corinthians, actually emphasised on something slightly different, which um, I thought was really interesting. He says that the, um, the glory which is to be, to be beheld is within the church as well, through the process of transformation. Because we are vessels of the Spirit's work, everyone who has put their trust in Jesus can look at each other and see another life and another heart that has been transformed and softened by the Holy Spirit. Can I just ask the worship band to come up, please? The church is a letter to the world, just as Paul started off by talking about. We are vessels of God's glory reflections of Christ and his glory. We're a testimony of God's power to heal and restore broken lives. We're a testimony of his beauty and his mercy and his grace. 
and his work in us through Jesus. We are a testimony that people can and do change through the life-giving power of the Spirit. And I just want to end on um, a final challenge for us to be thinking about this week. Are we people who are willing to humble ourselves to the transforming power of the Spirit? Are we soft-hearted before God, our Father, and each other? And thirdly, are we becoming like the one we adore? Are we wanting to grow? Are we wanting to mature through obedience as he transforms us to be more like him? I'm just going to pray and close, and then Rob's going to sing one last song for us. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you are interested in each one of us. Thank you, Lord God, that though you are glorious in all your holiness, you are a personal God who came down to this earth to live amongst us, to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. I thank you, Lord God, that you have a purpose for us as your people. God, I thank you that you're wanting to humble us, Lord, and soften our hearts and, and mould us to be more and more like you. And Lord God, I just pray that you'd seal, Lord, the truth of this passage in our hearts this week, Lord, that you would just be sealing through your spirit those things that you're wanting to teach us. In your name, amen.